Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, President Biden tells Republican governors who won't help end the pandemic to get out of the way. Congressman Mondaire Jones talks to me about the new eviction moratorium. And as House Democrats start to worry aloud about losing their majority in 2022, some new polling from Data for Progress tells us which messages just might save the House. But first, good news. You can now binge the entire season of Edith, a scripted podcast from Crooked and Q-Code. As Vulture puts it, Edith is a fiction podcast that stands as a really good time, minute to minute, and that's no small feat. And don't miss the latest episode of America Dissected, where Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is joined by the author of The Green New Deal, Rihanna Gunn-Wright. Listen to Edith and America Dissected wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to the news. Just last week, we were debating on this very podcast, whether President Biden should come out in favor of vaccine requirements which the White House had been hesitant to do. All that changed on Tuesday, when the president not only urged cities and states to require proof of vaccination for restaurants and other public spaces, he also called out Republican governors who've banned businesses and schools from requiring vaccines or masks. Here's a clip. If some governors aren't willing to do the right thing to beat this pandemic, then they should allow businesses and universities who want to do the right thing to be able to do it. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way of the people who are trying to do the right thing. So when we talked about this last Monday, Tommy and Lovett argued that Biden himself using the bully pulpit to push vaccine requirements might risk further polarizing the issue. I disagreed. What do you think? Is it, should I say you're both right or should I say you're both wrong? (laughs) I mean, 
the hottest take would be that we're both wrong, and then you can, you know, you can just slide right in there as the right one. <laughs> I, I think I don't know whether you're both right. You're both wrong. Not the mo- it's not the most collegial answer, but you know, it's the it's the hottest take. <laughs> it that that's that's the goal, right? Is the hottest right, of take. That's what tell we're the, doing here. Tell Elijah to get this clip ready because it's gonna be searing hot take. <laughs> no, in all seriousness. It is definitely going to polarize the idea of vaccine mandates more, but I think that is also a risk worth taking. I don't think there's another choice. In an era of negative polarization, Joe Biden speaking about anything will polarize it in some way among Republicans, right? If Biden were to come out and announce that he he has decided the grass is green and the sky is blue, there are going to be some of the Republicans who are going to switch their opinion and think the sky is green and the grass is blue. Like, that's just the world in which we live. But he he should do it because it's the right thing to do. These governors are they are killing people. I don't I mean it seems like a horrible thing to say, but people are going to die because of this. People are going to get sick because of it. People are going to lose their jobs because of it. Kids are going to miss out on school and have their education messed with because of it. And but and he should absolutely call it out because the people in the Joe Biden is right on the science, he's right on the the medicine and he is right politically. In these states, the the majority of people agree with Joe Biden about mass mandates and vaccine mandates and, and those situations. But so he should absolutely call it out so that the residents of those states know whose fucking fault it is that this is happening. It's not Joe Biden's fault. It's not random unvaccinated people going around. It's a bunch of Republican politicians who are doing performative cruelty on behalf of a minority of their citizens who have a disproportionate amount of political power. And and I am very worked up about this. It is because you know who was being, uh, this may seem obvious right now, but the people who are at most risk because of this are the kids who don't get, who have no choice about being vaccinated. They're all going back to school. They're all at much greater risk. And we can, and there, you know, there's obviously lots of questions about whether kids get it as often or they get it as bad, but that's not even really the point is that by your choice to not get vaccinated, it's not just about you deciding to put yourself at risk. You're putting everyone else at risk and you're putting children at risk. And I think the 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 children aspect of this, the risk that people are putting kids should be pointed out more because that is what that's what's going to Florida schools. These kids are all going to go back to school in many cases without a mask mandate because Ron DeSantis said they can't do it, even if you are a school or a city who wants to do the right thing. And so Biden calling that out is the right thing to do. I think it could in some ways put it might polarize it some among people who already feel this way, but it could put political pressure on them to do something different. Yeah, my view on this is that I care a lot about polarization and persuasion when we are when the goal is to try to get votes. We're not trying to get votes right now. We're trying to get shots in arms. Right. So we're not the persuasion thing has run its course. <laughs> the goal is to get shots in arms. First and most importantly, vaccine requirements save lives and they work um, there's consistently six to seven percent of people in polls who say that they will not get the vaccine unless they are required to. And then if they are required to, they will. That's that translates to millions of people nationwide. Uh, France did this. And as soon as they announced a vaccine requirement, millions and millions of people signed up in the next 48 hours. It works. Second, like you said, vaccine requirements are popular. <laughs> a poll of 20,000 adults in June found that 64 percent support a requirement that everyone get vaccinated, including 45% of Republicans. It is an issue that divides the Republican Party. Uh, 70% of all voters support a requirement for air travel, and 61% support a vaccine requirement for schools. Second, even if they weren't popular, 
or even if they cause a huge backlash from the right wing media ecosystem, I would argue that this would still be good politics for Joe Biden. And here's why. The White House has understood since day one that voters top priority is killing the pandemic and reviving the economy. And this is how you kill the pandemic. And like, I I don't think you can crush the pandemic without a vaccine requirement at this point. Persuading vaccine hesitant Americans will only get you so far. And it will definitely not get us anywhere close to herd immunity, which we may, may never reach anyway at this point. But vaccine requirements at this point are our only chance. And again, vaccine requirements are giving Americans choices. You got three choices. Uh, one, you can get a, a free, safe, life-saving vaccine. Two, you can pay out of your pocket to get regularly tested and wear a mask, perhaps for years, indefinitely. Or three, you can stay home. Those are your three choices. Uh, the choice that you don't get is to endanger the rest of us by going out into public places unvaccinated and unmasked. That's your choice. It is just the conversation around this is so wild. It's like no one has stopped to think about it for two fucking seconds. You know what's not revolutionary or new? Vaccine requirements. Kyla starts preschool this week. You and I have to do. I have to go to her doctor and get her doctor to sign a piece of paper where it says she's been vaccinated against a whole bunch of diseases that have been controlled for decades. Yet a whole bunch of people think they have a right to get on a fucking airplane unvaccinated for a virus that is raging across the country right now. If you go to co- like college, just require vaccination, right? It is it is just absolutely right. You do not have unlimited freedom, right? You're, like there are privileges and requirements of citizenship. You there's a reason you have to wear a seatbelt when you're in a car. Or you have to wear a mo- helmet if you drive a motorcycle, because your freedom to choose that costs us all this money because you end up uh, getting injured, killed, it could be ending up in the hospital. All like there are requirements. This is a basic. Thing and you're right. If you want to stay home, you can stay home. Like you can do that. But you there do not have a right to get on an airplane. You don't have a right to bring a knife on an airplane, or frankly, even a bottle of water through the airport security these days. And so the it's just it's we're tr- like this keeps being treated in the conversation around it as if this is some crazy thing that was just invented by George Soros and a bunch of Hollywood elites. It is. Just it has been the common way in which we have done things since vaccines were invented. And it's not radical to do it now. It's not. And Democrats should not shy away from this. I lean into this fight. Do not accept the Republican framing here that this is some fucking federal government mandate, blah, 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 bullshit. We are the ones offering people a choice. Republicans are not offering people the choice to live in a country where it's safe to be in public. Yeah. Do you know what's do you know what's big government authoritarianism? Governors telling local cities and schools that they what they can teach in classroom or what their whether kids have to wear masks or not that is that is not freedom or individualism that is big government authoritarianism and we, just ah. which 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 brings us which brings us to these Republican governors that that Joe Biden was talking about um, they obviously didn't take too kindly to Biden's uh, suggestion Florida's Ron DeSantis who uh, signed an executive order this week threatening to withhold funding from schools that require mask mandates amid a record number of COVID cases and hospitalizations in his state, including 21,000 infections among children just this week. He had this to say to President Biden. Joe Biden has taken to himself to try to single out Florida um, over COVID. Uh, This is a guy who ran for president saying he was going to, quote, shut down the virus. And what has he done? He's imported more virus from around the world by having a wide open southern border. 
why don't you do your job? Why don't you get this border secure? And until you do that, I don't want to hear a blip about COVID from you. Thank you. Uh, now is the moment where I once again remind you all of the following Politico headline from March 18th, 2021. How Ron DeSantis won the pandemic. Dan, tell us how he did it. How did he win this pandemic by um, having record hospitalizations, record COVID cases uh, months into the vaccination campaign? Must we insist on making all the same mistakes over again? Right. This is. Yeah, it is like this. is Ron DeSantis didn't uh, win the pandemic. What happened was Republicans spent decades convincing the mainstream media that they had to swerve out of their way whenever there was a chance to possibly say Republicans were right and Democrats were wrong. And they put up a giant fucking journalistic mission accomplished banner in Florida long before the virus was crushed. It's just absolute stupidity. And the, I mean, like that, like we, maybe we make this jokes all the time. That's just like Fox news, right wing media, Mad Libs, right? Joe Biden, border people, Joe Biden's importing COVID across the southern border. What the fuck are you talking about? It's spreading in your state, which I would mind you is not on the border. You are surrounded by water unless you are worried about people coming in from Georgia and Alabama, right? Like it is just so stupid. Everyone's like, yay, what a smart thing to say. This is a Fox thing now, and it and it started showing up in some polls because they've done some polls on like um, who is to blame for the rise in COVID cases, and the majority of Americans say the unvaccinated. But then when you look by party split, many Republicans, if not a majority of the party, I can't remember the poll, um, now say that foreign travelers or foreigners from into the United States are responsible for the rise in COVID cases. And sure enough, on Fox, you see all the time what DeSantis is saying is that somehow it is the it is this what's happening at the southern border and people coming in from Mexico that are bringing in COVID. And that's why we have rising cases now. That's the new conspiracy theory floating around on the right, which, you know, neatly ties together um, COVID denialism with, um, you know, their uh, their immigration uh, attack. That always reminds me that Tom Cotton, double mm. Harvard graduate in 2014 mm. when he was running for Senate, threw out there the idea that ISIS ISIS was infecting undocumented immigrants with Ebola and sneaking them across the border as a bioweapon. Yeah, Which real bank shot there. That's, that's a, the tri- that's, a... that's the triple Lindy of uh, right wing <laughs> paranoia right there. Jesus. I mean, it's not just DeSantis. You know, Jen Psaki pointed this out at the White House briefing. Seven states have both a statewide ban on mask mandates and a prohibition on school districts from requiring masks in schools. In some states, as you pointed out, have even banned businesses and universities from requiring workers and students to be vaccinated. In Texas, a teacher can be fined if they ask a student if they're vaccinated or if they ask unvaccinated students to wear a mask. Unfucking believable. My question is, like, how does Biden crush the pandemic when governors of big red states like Florida and Texas refuse to require masks or vaccines? He probably can't. Yeah. I mean, he, what I think they are doing, is, and I think it's using the limited tools in their toolbox, is they are now working aggressively to encourage businesses and others to put in place vaccine mandates. And yeah. so and I think that's probably how he does it. He gets around these governors by just right. appealing directly to businesses, universities and other private sector entities that could impose these uh, vaccine requirements on their own. And he has been using the bully pulpit if you will, to raise concerns about Delta. And we've seen that that is working, right? We are seeing record numbers of 
new vaccinations on a daily basis coming out of the White House uh, COVID team. And so it like people are there was a group of people who were unwilling to be vaccinated prior to this, who now see the spread of Delta and are worried about it and are getting vaccinated. Now, that's not happening at anywhere near the rate we need it to. And it's certainly not happening with the sort of geographic uh, diversity that we need it to. Because one of the problems we have is this right now, the where COVID is the worst happens to be in the places that are least likely to get support from their local elected officials for mass mandates and for businesses to put in place vaccine mandates. And so this is very, very hard. It is like these people are the Republican politicians are making it. They're screwing everyone for the right, because what happens uh, in Florida, Texas affects everyone else in the country. But Biden's doing what he can do. But we should be crystal clear that it is very it is limited. He has limited authority to do this. One thing that I think is interesting is that there was a report that Secretary Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was looking at getting a vaccine mandate in place for all active duty troops. Like that would mm-hmm. go a huge way of doing it. Uh, like there's, yeah. you're, you're sort of like every person vaccinated helps a lot, right? And so every like you're going to sort of there's not one thing that you can do to get it done, but there's lots of things that are happening that are are clearly having an impact. And I think part of the strategy in Biden's speech calling out Republican governors, which, you know, Biden doesn't tend to call out Republicans a lot, um, is to make it clear who's at fault here. And, you know, sure enough, um, according to a new St. Pete poll in Florida, Ron DeSantis's approval went from 55-40 in May to 44-49 today. And you have to wonder <laughs> if that has to do with the fact that his state is now seeing record COVID cases and, and hospitalizations and people are not that happy with the way he's handling the pandemic. I, I don't know what else it could be. What do you think? I think that's right. He's certainly suffering from the fact that I think a lot of people in Florida and around the country thought this was largely behind us, that we were on a sort of inexorable path towards normalcy. And now we have taken a huge uh, step back. It's just in people's lives, right? People are putting either because they have to or because they choose to or wearing masks Kids are going back to school, and I think there was a lot of hope that that would feel much more normal, maybe maybe no masks, maybe much less fear of COVID, the world in which like one kid coughs and everyone is a, in a panic. If you've ever had to stick a uh, Q-tip up your child's nose to, for a um, an antigen test, that is a fucking horrible experience, and parents are having to deal with that. And so that's obviously mm-hmm. affecting him. What that means for 2022 or his role as the 2024 non-Trump frontrunner, I think is a very different question. But in the moment, it is clearly hurting him. We should also talk about how this latest COVID surge is uh, maybe affecting Biden's approval. Um, 538 has him at 50.6 percent average approval rating, which is the lowest of his presidency. Uh, and worse than that, Dan, Chris Saliza says that Biden just had the worst week of his presidency. So I don't know where he goes from there. He should probably quit. Um, now, <laughs> a, a Politico morning consult poll from this week also found that 67 percent of voters believe that unvaccinated people bear the blame for the rising covid cases. But to me, again, we just talked about DeSantis, like the dip in Biden's approval still feels like people are cranky and pissed off that this fucking pandemic is getting worse again. They're not feeling great about the economy and. They're taking it out on the guy in charge, at least temporarily. I don't know. What do you think? Am I missing something there? No, you're not. I think it's – we should just – I would put this in the worry about everything, panic about nothing category um, mm-hmm. because 50.6 is his lowest. But I think his highest 
was like at when you get right past like the first week after inauguration was like 53. He's been in a very yeah. narrow band the whole time. There's been a lot of attention on this morning console poll, which showed this huge drop for Biden. But that poll had his approval rating at 62, which was about was, you know, 10 to 11 points higher than what his average was at the time. And this is a pretty typical thing that happens in media polling is you get this giant outlier that makes things look rosier than they are. And then it comes you get a normal poll and all those coverage is like, how did Biden lose 10 points in a week as opposed to the reality is your poll was wrong? And it works the other way too, right? Where it's, you get an outlier on the low side and then it's like, come back, come back kid, because it comes back to the average. And, but underneath the overall approval rating, to your point, there are some troubling, uh, or at least troubling or at least concerning trends worth looking at. In a different political morning console poll, there's 59% of people blame Biden's policies for inflation and the rising cost of mm. things as opposed to just people who's returning to normal. And that includes 41% of Democrats. And so that that is a like it was there was a lot of dismissing of inflation concern, the political concerns around inflation a few months ago. That seems to be pretty real politically at least. And maybe inflation will come down as time goes on. We don't know. But right now it, it's a problem. And your point on COVID-related pessimism is the navigator research folks have a poll out this morning. And they have this really interesting question where they ask people, is the worst of the pandemic ahead of us or behind us? And the number of people who think the worst of the pandemic is ahead of us has gone up double digits among all groups uh, since their last poll. And which also makes sense, right? Like if you yeah. just like if you were to just like teleport yourself back a few weeks and read the press coverage, it's like hot facts, summer, every return to normalcy, vacations, birthday parties, people are at baseball games. And now things feel very different. And maybe some of that can pretty pretty lukewarm back summer right now. That's right. That's right. Luke, uh, lukewarm at best, Dan. Lukewarm at best. Is it like, is it even lukewarm? I don't know. But yeah, getting getting colder. It, you know, it's like it's a it's a fair question about whether people's, particularly vaccinated people's concerns outstrips the reality of what they should be concerned about. But that that concern it's is real. real. They're concerned. Yeah. But again, I think, you know. The, the Biden theory of the case since the beginning has been crush the pandemic. That helps revive the economy. That puts people in a good mood. That is our best chance to govern and be successful in this administration and to potentially be reelected again in 2024. I think that is correct, which is why, going back to our original conversation, that just getting more people vaccinated, as many people as possible, through whatever it takes, persuasion, requirements, incentives, carrots, sticks, all of it is the most important thing to do for them, right? Like that is, it's the, it's the substantively most important thing to do. It's the right thing to do, but it's also the politically smart thing for them to do because if they can't fix the pandemic and they can't fix the economy, then the whole rest of the, everything else goes to shit. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, all right. When we come back, I will talk to Congressman Mondaire Jones about the new eviction moratorium. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Last Saturday, the federal eviction moratorium expired, which had protected nearly 11 million Americans who'd fallen behind on rent during the pandemic from being thrown out of their homes. The Biden administration said they didn't think they had the legal authority to extend the moratorium on their own. Democratic leaders in Congress said they didn't have the votes to pass an extension because of the filibuster in the Senate. But a few members, led by Congresswoman Cori Bush, refused to take no for an answer, protested and camped outside the Capitol. And on Tuesday, the CDC announced they were extending the moratorium for counties with high COVID infection rates until October 3rd, a move that President Biden said would cover up to 90 percent of renters. First-term Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York was one of the members protesting outside the Capitol. He joins us now to talk about how we got here and what happens next. Congressman, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, man. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. We're, we're happy to have you here. Um, of all of the disappointing votes and decisions you've seen since you've been in Washington, why was this one so important for you to protest? It was so important to protest Uh, because as many as 11 million people stood to be evicted from their homes, uh, and many of those people, in the words of Congresswoman Cori Bush, would have died, Uh, whether uh, from the Delta variant or some other version of the COVID-19 virus, or from exposure to the elements or violence, And, and we're not just talking about parents, we're talking about children, in some instances, infant children. And the entire time, the White House had the authority to issue what ended up being a new moratorium. Uh, And of course, Congress should never have recessed uh, without holding a vote on this question. Uh, And it's why, especially as someone who grew up in Section 8 housing himself and who knows what it's like to be housing insecure, uh, people like Cori Bush and I and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez decide to take matters into our own hands through protest. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, I think the question is what happens now, right? The new moratorium lasts until October 3rd. Um, The courts could strike it down at any moment. It seemed like the Supreme Court had had given a single signal through Brett Kavanaugh that they would if the administration did something like this. Um, So so what's the plan between now and October 3rd to make sure we don't face this again? The plan is to disperse uh, the approximately $46.5 billion dollars that Congress has already allocated for this very purpose through legislation uh, at the state level. I'm in New York State, and much has been said about our governor in recent months. Uh, one of the challenges is that he has not dispersed the over $2 billion that he's been sitting on uh, to people who urgently need rental assistance. Uh, so this isn't even a red state issue. Do you have any idea why that is? We have blue state governors sitting on uh, billions of dollars. Is this bureaucracy? Is this? I, I read a couple things about how some landlords were having trouble actually getting tenants to participate in the program because there's paperwork involved. Like, w- is there any idea what the source of this problem is here? It, to be sure, there are ways that we can improve upon uh, the process of getting relief both to tenants 
and to landlords, right? I mean, one idea is uh, empowering landlords to uh, go to a governmental agency and get those funds directly so that people mm -hmm. who are housing insecure uh, and, and are facing a variety of issues, including maybe um, insufficient resources to be able to, to navigate this process, uh, don't have to be the ones standing in the way of landlords being made whole and, and of securing housing for themselves uh, that they are currently in. I'm not going to try to get into the mind of my governor, but I can tell you that there's no excuse for it. Uh, and it's why I, along with the rest of the New York congressional delegation, signed a letter recently calling on uh, the state to administer those funds that have already been allocated by Congress. And now, with respect to red state governors, they don't believe that government should be helping anybody. Right. Is there, is there any plan? I mean, is, there, is this going to require legislation? Is there hopes that legislation would pass? Can the administration itself do more on its own? What are, what are some of the options? Well, one of the challenges is that even if Congress, specifically the House, had passed legislation uh, creating or imposing a new eviction moratorium on Friday of last yeah. week, it would have died likely in the Senate where all good things go to die, <laughs> which is why it was incumbent upon the White House to do what it could on at least a temporary basis uh, if the Supreme Court ultimately does strike down the moratorium. Uh, but also, I will just note that the filibuster is something that the White House could take a public position on and help mm. us get rid of. And so you don't get to say, like, it's on you, Congress, and then you know, remove yourself from the legislative process when it comes to stuff like this and voting rights, uh, but but not a bipartisan infrastructure package. It all comes back to that damn filibuster, doesn't it? Unfortunately. <laughs> um, you, you've pointed out that the pause on student loan collection will expire on September 30th. What's your sense on whether the Biden administration will extend that? And how long do you think they should? You're speaking to someone who, along with people like Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, uh, Alma Adams and others has said, Mr. President, you have clear authority under the Higher Education Act to cancel federally owned student debt, which accounts for the vast majority of student debt in this country. Uh, and you should use that authority to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt for every person who has it. Uh, we are in a situation where wages have been stagnant for literally decades, even as the cost of a four-year education, higher education, has skyrocketed. So I, I want to I just say that for context. Uh, at a minimum, we should be extending the pause on the collection of uh, on, on student debt, as well as the accrual of interest, which is the other thing that has been paused, uh, until such time as the pandemic is over. Mm. We know that the pandemic has exacerbated problems that, that pre-existed the coronavirus. Um, and it's why even the Trump administration, in fact, it was the first administration to impose this pause. We've, we've got to do better than the Trump administration. Would you make of Speaker Pelosi saying a, a couple days ago that she doesn't believe that Biden has the executive authority to cancel up to $50,000 in debt? Well, many of us, myself included, have been working on this issue for a long time. 
um, including studying the issue of his legal authority. Uh, and so it was frustrated to, to hear her opine in that way. Uh, and my understanding is that uh, her staff has since brought to her attention uh, what legal scholars have been saying about this. Um, huh. And and I'll just leave that there. <laughs> but the fact okay. is the, the White House has already used the same authority uh, most recently to cancel uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in, in fraudulent debt. Uh, the, the authority that it used to pause the collection uh, that is going to expire on September 30th is the same authority uh, from which uh, it derives the ability to cancel debt altogether. Uh, and I'm calling on the White House to make public the legal opinion that it said it would request within the Department of Education many, many months ago uh, on the on the subject of whether it has the authority to do so. Because I think the legal opinion will very clearly say that it has the authority. Okay. Um, what will it take for you to support both the bipartisan infrastructure deal and the budget reconciliation bill? I have no problem with voting for a bipartisan infrastructure package so long as we have a larger reconciliation bill that meets the moment, uh, that addresses the existential threat of climate change, that expands Medicare to include things like dental, vision, and hearing, and that makes childcare affordable for literally every family in this country. I have a bill with Senator Elizabeth Warren called the Universal Child Care and Early Learning Act, uh, which would make childcare free for families making up to 200% of the federal poverty line, in addition to capping the annual cost of childcare for every family in America at 7% of household income. As Senator Warren said famously during the DNC convention, childcare is infrastructure. Uh, and so those are the things I'm looking to see. I'm not going to put a dollar amount on what the reconciliation package should be. Uh, I would love for it to be $3.5 trillion. In fact, I'd like for it to be even larger. Um, but but I don't want to focus on a number as much as what the provisions of that bill must be in order to secure, to secure my support for a bipartisan infrastructure package. And I'm glad that Speaker Pelosi agrees with me on this. So if it comes over to the House at less than $3.5 trillion, as it seems like it, it may, listening to Cinema and Manchin and others, you could still support it provided that it spends money on the priorities that you mentioned sufficiently. And, and even Senator Manchin has not yet, and hopefully he right. won't ever, take issue with the $3.5 trillion number. Yeah, no, he hasn't drawn a line in the sand either, which is, uh, which is hopeful. Um, Progressive Caucus is a, a small but growing force in the House. Uh, has what you all achieved this week changed your thinking in any way about how progressives in Congress can wield their influence to achieve policy victories? I think prior to certain reforms that the Progressive Caucus undertook uh, last year, uh, and also the reinforcements that people like myself and Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman uh, and Richie Torres and others have provided, uh, that there was not nearly as much of an appetite to, to flex. And now you've got a bunch of people who didn't come up in the traditional way that politicians do. Cori Bush was a Black Lives Matter activist. I had never held elected office prior to making it to the United States Congress, and in fact, ran against the machine 
in my primary. Um, we are not waiting uh, to deliver real relief for the American people. And I think, in fact, I know that the policies we support are deeply popular. So I think this was a huge boost. I think it was um, an example of how you can get these kinds of wins in the space of executive action quite easily. Uh, that's what Senator Elizabeth Warren has been masterful at doing, if you look at her approach. Um, and I also think that you're going to see people increasingly clamor for a vehicle to do this stuff legislatively, meaning filibuster reform or abolition once infrastructure is over, because everything else is going to get blocked and we have to save our democracy. <laughs> so, you uh, you know, if, if you listen, you know that I yell about this all the time, filibuster reform, just just like you've been for the last couple of years. And, you know, I am just I find myself constantly disappointed because every time I think maybe there's a chance that, that Joe Manchin might be willing to you know, uh, propose some or, you know, accept some sort of reform or maybe do a carve out or maybe go back to 41 on the floor, all this kind of stuff. You know, some reporter asks him something. He says, no, never. I'm not going to do this. Like you've been a proponent of filibuster reform, of expanding the court, uh, all kinds of Democratic reforms that seem like they will not happen in this Congress as long as people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are there. What's your thinking on sort of the ultimate path to these reforms? Well, I don't give up hope that Senators Manchin and Sinema uh, can come around on this issue, but it's not going to be in the absence of the president of the United States using his platform mm. and the bully pulpit uh, and frankly, the resources available to him in negotiation mm. in order to extract the concession of at least filibuster reform right. from these two individuals who are standing in the way of democracy. And it really is as stark and as dire as that. I mean, this is yeah. the party of insurrection. These people don't want to certify presidential elections. They're, they feel as though their very existence is threatened by a changing America. They will do whatever it takes, and they are aided by the 6-3 far-right majority on the Supreme Court as an accomplice a majority that is hostile to democracy itself. We have got to pass the For the People Act in order to stop these people. Uh, last question. I'm wondering if you have any broader takeaway from the primary in Ohio this week between Chantel Brown and Nina Turner. I know the um, Progressive Caucus in the House supported Nina Turner. Um, your colleague, Hakeem Jeffries, said to the New York Times yesterday, quote, the majority of Democratic voters recognize that Trumpism and the radical right is the real enemy, not us. Apparently, the extreme left hasn't figured that out. What's your reaction to that? Well, I don't know who the extreme left is, uh, but I can tell you that in the affluent majority white suburbs of New York City, known as Westchester and Rockland counties, I crushed my opponents in the Democratic primary, including a state senator, a state assembly member, uh, a, a self-funding billionaire uh, running as very clearly the most progressive candidate in that race. Uh, Jamal Bowman won his race as the most progressive candidate, also in a district that includes a significant portion of Westchester County. I do not believe that the loss of Nina Turner in Ohio's 11th was due to her being progressive. I think there was a lot of money being spent 
uh, a lot of stuff um, that was said previously that was characterized in a certain way. Um, but we are seeing progressives win campaigns all across this country. Uh, and of course, when we poll progressive policies, we know that the communities are very supportive of them, including many Republicans. Yeah. No, it is interesting that you continue to poll progressive policies. You see that they're more popular. You see progressive policy victories like we saw this week. Um, and yet sometimes progressive candidates in sort of tougher primaries don't do as well, minus um, what you're talking about with yourself and, and some of your colleagues. Were you, were you sort of surprised that the Congressional Black Caucus came in there and, and, and backed Chantel Brown um, and, and, and Congressman Clyburn? What, what was your sense of that? Well, Congressmember Clyburn, Majority Whip Clyburn, has been very open about why he got involved. And he said that it's because of certain negative comments that were made by uh, the campaign that lost. Uh, and so I don't I don't want to um, exaggerate the, the, or distort the public narrative about why it is that certain members of the Congressional Black Caucus felt the need to, to get involved in the race. Um, but look, I mean, the black community is not monolithic and, and there is a divide within the caucus. I'm a very active member of the caucus, and I'm proud to say that, that my colleagues within the caucus like me, um, even as we may disagree on certain policies. Uh, we are overall quite unified. And it's why you saw people like myself and Ayanna Presley and others endorse Nina Turner uh, and other members endorse uh, Chantel Brown. And we are still unified as a caucus. <laughs> so, you know, I view it as a family. And then when you're in a family, not everybody agrees. And I'm excited to welcome Chantel Brown to the United States Congress for that matter. Congressman Mondaire Jones, thank you so much for coming on Pod Save America. Come back soon. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much. I'd love to be back. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, let's talk about the midterms. Uh, usually, the party that's expected to lose seats in a midterm will put on a brave face and spin reporters with a lot of happy talk that everyone knows is bullshit. But not our Democrats, Dan. Not our Democrats. Politico reported this week that DCCC chair Sean Patrick Maloney recently told his most vulnerable incumbents that if the election were held today, they would lose the majority. His prediction was based on new polling that showed Democrats falling behind Republicans by six points on a generic ballot in battleground districts. When asked about the data, the DCCC's executive director told Politico, we are not trying to hide this. Um... The story was specifically focused on concern over the party's message. What is that concern? 
and and do you agree with it? Well, first, I want to just say kudos to Sean Patrick Maloney and the DCCC. This is the right thing to do, right? It the, is, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about happy, this. Happy talk doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> just saying, telling everyone, like, we're fine. We're going to win. It's great. Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. Everyone in the, the party, donors, activists, members need to be crystal clear about how steep a hill we have before us. And I was thinking back to, do you remember in 2010 when our friend and then White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs went on Meet the Press? And I think David Gregory was host at the time. And he asked him whether, he asked Gibbs whether there was a chance Democrats could lose the House. Mm -hmm. And Gibbs said yes, which was a patently obvious thing. It wasn't likely at the time in which he said it, but warning signs were everywhere. I mean, unemployment was 10%. Like it was pretty possible that this could happen. It wasn't great. And the House Democrats went bananas on him. I think that Steny Hoyer held a press conference just to attack Robert Gibbs for it. <laughs> I and, don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. They were so mad at him. And he was sure, right. Sure Gibbs loved that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very uh, contentious, uh, if you will. Um, there were a lot of meetings between Robert and the legislative affairs team around that time. Uh, but like, this is the right thing to do. People need to be aware of the challenge before us. And yeah. that's important. Now, the specific messaging question uh, de- in this story, Debbie Dingell, who is a congresswoman from Michigan, and I think one of the savviest members politically, she was a mm-hmm. Democratic operative for a long time, the widow of Congressman John Dingell. She serves in his seat. She said, our message is not breaking through. And that's exactly right. That is what's happening. We've talked about this before. I think this is a megaphone problem, not a message problem. It's like people aren't, it's not that we're saying the wrong things. It's that people are not hearing them because we do not have the apparatus to get to them. There is some good news on this, which is there was a report uh, last week, I think, that Democratic groups were going to spend $100 million in the during the month of August on messaging around the bipartisan infrastructure deal and the and the jobs and family plan to communicate to voters about it. And so there is like there is some cavalry coming. Um, but yeah, people have every right to be concerned. It is seems somewhat patently obvious that if the election were held today, we would lose the House because for first, think about it this way. If Joe Biden's at 50.6, which is a very respectable and good approval rating for a president, mm-hmm. what do we – and that's in a national poll that includes California, New York, et cetera. What do we think his approval rating is in districts that either Trump won or Biden did less well than his national numbers? And we know that generic Democrats – underperformed Biden in these districts. And so this is somewhat obvious, but it's important to say it because everyone needs to be aware of the work ahead of us. I I do agree that we're not breaking through with our message. I sort of always agree with that. It's very hard to break through with the message. We've talked about that a million times. I I sort of wonder if it's more of an economy problem, a general mood problem than it is a message problem. And I wonder that because of a couple of things from this polling you know, they said that both the American Rescue Plan and the American Jobs Plan in this polling are incredibly popular, incredibly popular with swing voters in battleground districts, right? Not just like base Democrats. People love these plans. And yet only 42% of the people in this in these polls, uh, battleground voters, trust Democrats on the economy. And so, and they also, and you know, Debbie Dingell said uh, that when she goes home to Michigan in her in her district, people said that Democrats aren't doing enough to boost the economy. So clearly, it seems like there is some financial concerns around the country, economic concerns around the country, and people don't feel the economy is where it should be, and they don't see Democrats doing enough to fix it. Now, partly that can be solved by 
you know, better messaging and spending a lot of money delivering that message to voters and saying, oh, look, we are doing a lot to help you. Here's what we're here's what we've already passed. And here's what we're fighting for now. I think that's uh, that's a necessity. But I wonder if it doesn't truly get fixed until the economy gets fixed and things are going well and people say, oh, yeah, now I feel like I'm doing better in my own life and I'm looking around the economy and, and things are good. I don't know. I mean, Joe Biden mailed a thousand dollar check to tens of millions of people and it didn't affect his approval rating. Um, that yeah. that does speak to the limits of what can like what else are they going to do that's more popular, like the stuff in the or more impactful to people's lives? No, I guess what I'm saying is like until inflation comes, you know, it, until in, until people say, OK, inflation really isn't a long term problem. It was temporary. It's coming down. And now I'm in a better mood. Like, I, I think that, you know, one thing you keep seeing in these polls and in some focus groups, too, is people just keep mentioning the inflation issue. And they're saying, yeah, maybe he gave me a thousand dollar check, but now prices are rising. So what the fuck? I which is something Joe Biden has very little control over. Almost nothing. Yeah, no, that's that's the Which challenge. Is always the truth with the economy. The president gets all the blame and all the credit and has only limited right. influence on what yeah. actually happens. Um, I mean, I remember us like watching like bank default rates in Greece being a really relevant re-election factor for Barack that. Obama. Wow, and yeah. so you have a couple of choices here. And I think we cannot leave this topic of keeping the house without pointing out that all of the messaging, billions of dollars in ads would be less impactful than passing a one-page bill in the Senate that banned partisan gerrymandering. That's the biggest right. problem. And this that is not Denise Triple C's fault. It's not Sean Patrick Mulley's fault. That's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's fault because everyone else is for that. They passed that. But that is – we – that would – if you, I had a choice between $100 billion in Democratic ads between now and November or – passing the one-page ban on partisan gerrymandering about what would help us the most in keeping the House, it would definitely be the gerrymandering ban. I completely agree with that, though I was sort of thinking about it from the other perspective, which is uh, in a world, I don't want people to think that the reason that the House is in jeopardy is only because of Republican gerrymandering, even though that's the biggest reason, that if there were no gerrymandering, we would still see polls like this where the Democratic challenger or the Democrat is six points behind a Republican in a battleground district. We have other problems to fix. So I don't want people just thinking like, our message is perfect. And if, all we, and if only we just passed independent redistricting commissions, everything would be great. <laughs> yeah, we should we should undo re independent redistricting commissions and eliminate 10 Republican states in California as one possible fucking idea, <laughs> which I think you can't actually do because it was passed without initiative, but you get my point. But yeah. it it... The other thing, just not to be overly dark about this, but this is a poll of ungerrymandered districts. We don't even know how gerrymandered right. the districts are. That's what I'm are. saying. That's, <laughs> That's what right. I'm saying. This is best case scenario, people. We got a lot of problems. We got a lot of problems. <laughs> but the other, yeah. I think the other messaging question here is, and I think this will lead us into our next topic, is should we spend money and time and energy advertising what Democrats have done to make your life better? Or should we spend time and energy advertising what Republicans would do to make it worse? Great segue. Great segue. Um, <laughs> so in an effort to be constructive, instead of just us worrying out loud, uh, we conducted a poll with our friends at Data for Progress where we asked people how they felt about a bunch of shit Republicans have done over the last few years. Here was the list. Striking down sections of the Voting Rights Act and making it harder to vote. Packing the judiciary with right-wing judges. Cutting taxes for the rich, blocking action on climate change, trying to build a border wall, 
supporting Trump, repeating the big lie, voting to overturn the 2020 election, and encouraging violent protests at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Here are the top five things that people disapprove of the most from that poll. Number one, inciting insurrection, 70%. Comforting. Comforting, that's number one. Number two, tax cuts for the rich, 58% disapproval. Number three, attacking voting rights, 57% disapproval. Number four, climate denialism, 55% approval. And uh, number five, spreading the big lie, 54% disapproval. What do you think about those results? And is there a message somewhere in there? Because that was a lot of different things. What I think this poll proves is that... There is a huge opportunity to brand the Republicans in a negative light for voters. Generic Republican is not the anvil around the neck of the Republicans on the ballot that it can be and should be. And I don't think this poll yet answers the question of exactly what that should be, but it is very clear to me from looking at this, and I recognize that I am doing the thing where I look at a poll and use it to confirm all of my prior opinions, but that it... Mm -hmm. uh, it shows that, yeah, it's so strange, that there is, people do not like Republicans. People will like Republicans even less the more they knew about them, and they don't know enough about Republicans. And so you, I think there is, like, definitely, there are lots of opportunities here. I think what this poll shows is that there is there could be real benefit in a message that paints Republicans dramatically out of the mainstream. That's what a lot of this is, right? Is that these are, it's radical Republican is essentially the, um, the yeah. framework we would use of, you know, big lie. Don't believe in the science around climate change, hang out with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. Like there's, that is one, uh, narrative about the party that would, I think have some impact with voters, particularly voters who, uh, maybe voted for Biden at the top of the ticket and a Republican, uh, on the congressional or Senate level, that they could be persuaded that this party is a lot more Trump-like than they thought. Yeah, I, I should have said there were two things on that list that I left out, which was we also tested uh, Matt Gates's scandal and Marjorie Taylor Greene's comparisons of the House mask mandate to the Holocaust. And of course, the disapproval for both of those was off the charts. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. I didn't sort of include it because I, I, I seriously doubt that uh, a Democrat running against a Republican in some far-flung district is going to somehow successfully tie that specific Republican to what Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene did. You can, of course, call them out for not calling out <laughs> Matt Gates or condemning Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? You can say, you're part of this party. You didn't say, I think that's fine. You can do that. But I doubt that's sort of a, a larger strategy available to the party to just pick out two scandals and make a bigger thing about it. Can I can I just push on that for a sec? Sure. Yeah. Um, do you think the Republican strategy of putting AOC, Ilhan Omar, uh, which is obviously an incredibly misogynistic and racist approach, or in using Nancy Pelosi for decades as the face of the Democratic Party, that that like it, do you think that worked for them? And if it did work for them, why wouldn't it work for us? I don't think there's a ton of evidence that that worked for them. Um, I think that they were able, I think, so in 2018, they did this a lot and it certainly didn't work for them in 2018. Obviously in 2020, they did much better in the house than we thought they would. I think there may have been success at, there may have been some, some success framing the democratic party as more liberal or potentially more radical as a party than its standard bearer, Joe Biden. I don't know that specific attacks on AOC or Ilhan Omar 
sort of translated to some of these districts. I think some of the policy positions could have, uh, they, you know, some of the policy positions that some Democrats or some activists staked out could have worked for Republicans. But I think the people themselves uh, are, it's a little bit, I just think like, you know, a voter, you're, it's it's uh, it's Joe Smith versus Sally, and you're like, uh, and Joe Smith has nothing to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, and you spend a whole campaign saying, oh, but, but, but they're going to be in the same party as this person who did X. Like, I, I don't know that it works as well on either side, Democrat or Republican. I I think I agree with that I c- certainly think the individual people are what they they are. It, it's a little of what you think was the more important part. Was it? radical socialist defund the police or in yeah. the Pelosi case over the years, Hollywood liberal and Republicans we should be very clear. It works more with their voters because they're weaponizing race and gender. And that is an effective tactic for them with a lot of their voters. We saw that with Hillary Clinton. We've seen it with Barack Obama. Like that, that is, is correct. Clear. I agree with that. But there are like, I think there's a nuance to maybe like having some avatars for that radicalism. It's not like saying mm. like, it's not saying QOP or party of Q. Or, like, I think that that sells the voter short. It sort of treats them as idiots, um, which is never a good political strategy in our opinion. Um, but there is some sense of like, like having some people who get a lot of press attention who are kind of scary to the voters we want is not the worst thing in the world. I think that's right. But I think, I think where we probably agree is, Branding Republicans in general as extremists, and there's a lot of supporting evidence for that, is is going to be effective. And I think that does span the gamut from um, everything that happened around the 2020 election, the insurrection, overturning the re- results, the big lie, to climate change denialism, you know, continuing to support tax cuts for the richest American as the middle class is falling behind, right? Like, I think that's what we're seeing in this poll is that when Republicans have staked out more extremist positions, people are more likely to disapprove of them, which is not like fucking lightning bolts, <laughs> like not the biggest revelation, but it's worth remembering. And I also think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, it was not in that Trump, that top five is supporting Donald Trump, which I thought was kind of interesting. And yet the big lie supporting the insurrection, attacking voting rights, that was those were all in the top five. So I do think it is it might be a tempting shorthand to say, and we do this all the time, these are Trump Republicans. They're just like Trump. It's a clone of Trump. I think you have to go a little bit further and say why they're like Trump, what positions they hold that are like Trump, what they have said and done that is like Trump, and not just say, not just expect people to believe that every Republican is like Trump and supporting Trump is automatically disqualifying, unfortunately. Yeah, Trump is such a unique figure in terms of like personality and presence and just like overt stupidity that it is sometimes hard to th- like it it really is hard like you have some relatively generic college republican fox news green room lunatic running for congress somewhere and it's sort of they don't seem like donald trump he is just this figure with this long history and presence but trumpism right and you you can you don't have to call it trumpism but the ideas that lie at the heart of it that you know, predate Trump, I think ha- can be really, I still think there, that we didn't really test this in this poll. There are some choices between crazy and corporatist that I don't know mm. what the right answer to that is. I think in the long run, the number one goal of the democratic party should be separating Republicans from their working class base. Because the, especially yes. if we have reason to believe that working class base is becoming more diverse. If it's, they're making gains with 
working class black and Latino voters. That is the that's the end of the game for us. So we got to stop that trend. In this poll, we've looked at these disapproval ratings as sort of in the aggregate. And I wonder if um, there are some things that Republicans have done, like continue to push for tax cuts for the rich, that working class voters, white, black and brown, disapprove of more than perhaps upper income voters. Right. And then I do think there are voters in the suburbs, college educated voters who may have been you know, George Bush Republicans, Mitt Romney Republicans, and now they voted for Joe Biden for the first time. And they might care more about Republicans uh, inciting insurrection, spreading the big lie, trying to overturn the election. So it could be different messages work for different demographic groups that we need in the Democratic coalition. I do think we have to pick one of the two. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the lessons of politics in this sort of interconnected social media age is the, particularly given our media infrastructure deficit as Democrats is we need one narrative about Republicans. And I think the, and that can be to like, you can look at the map and say, we're better off, uh, you know, getting the, because I do think these messages attract different people or dissuade different people. Um, and you can sort of, I don't know the answer to which is the right one to keep the house or to reelect Joe Biden in 2024 or whatever that is. But like you want everyone saying the same thing about Republicans. Yeah, because right. that gives additional throw rate behind the message because every Republican runs on the same message against Democrats. And that has worked to define the Democratic brand in the eyes of Republicans. And we tend to run, particularly in red districts away from the party or, you know, run more specific campaigns about specific Republicans. It's like we need one narrative for them and then everyone should say it all the time. And this is one of the situations where the only wrong choice, in my opinion, is no choice. Send us your narratives. Obviously, the best narratives are crowdsourced. On social media. (laughs) Yes. You know what? Actually, go through your Twitter timeline, find your tweets that got the most engagement, send those to us. That's what we're looking for. Thank you to Congressman Mondaire Jones for joining us today. Um, And everyone have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25.